This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Hello and welcome to Rational Security, the Hell in a Yemeni Handbasket edition. I'm Shane Harris with the Daily Beast. Just back, I finally got to take a nice trip, you guys. Where did you go? I went to San Francisco. You lucky dog. It was awesome. It was so nice. What did nice you leave city. your heart there? I did. No, I brought my heart back. <laughs> in a very small refrigerated box. <laughs> they let you take that through security. They do. They do. They, they didn't see anything interesting there. Was slacking off. Slacking off after 9/11, Whatsoever. man. Slacking off. That's right. Uh, I'm driving, as always with my friends uh, Tamara Kaufman. But it's hello, Tamara. Hello, Shane. Very nice to see you. And um, we are without our usual uh, third party, so we have a very special guest this week. Our good friend Wells Bennett. Woo! Woo! That's Welcome right. Wells. Woo! You all may know Wells uh, from Lawfare, the managing editor of Lawfare. Indeed. Uh, or as I know him uh, from uh, from my friend in the hood of Bloomingdale. High five. That's right. We are Bloomingdale buddies. Actually, Wells was in Bloomingdale before I was. Wells brought me over. Indeed. So you are either urban pioneers or agents of gentrification. Which do you prefer? Yes. Uh, yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> we have a third option too. Like I want lots of titles, like the Queen of England. Right. You know. Uh, for those of you who don't know, Bloomingdale is not Indiana. It's a neighborhood in Washington, D.C. I get that a lot, by the way. Same. People say, like, where are you from, Bloomingdale? They'll be like, where's that? <laughs> I'll just say, it's two neighborhoods east of Logan Circle. Like, oh, yeah, yeah, sure. Great. It's a neighborhood that was called something else until a few years ago. <laughs> That's exactly right. I think it was called an open-air drug market until a few years ago. Uh, all right, well, thank you, Wells, for being here. I'm thrilled. Um, thank you. So this week on the show, what is the U.S. strategy in Yemen and just how big of a nightmare is it? Also, Washington takes the cyber wars west to Silicon Valley, plus in our object lessons segment, spy gardens and swashbuckling pilots. Stay tuned for that. Um, let's see. Wells, why don't we start with you, since you're our special guest this week with Object Lesson. Object uh, Lesson? Yeah, or sorry, not Object Lesson. Not, all right, he knows the show better than I, I do. I've studied this show. I, 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 I'm a subscriber. Let's start with your wordplay. My wordplay actually derives from an article uh, penned by Eric Schmidt and Michael Gordon in yesterday's New York Times, and uh, it is headlined as follows. Saudi resolve on Yemen reflects limits of U.S. strategy. Now, uh, I was really excited when I read this uh, because here I was coming to talk to the Rational Security Squad about uh, rational security issues, and I read this headline and the article, but then uh, there was sort of a premise in the headline that I wanted to explore here, which is, what is the U.S. strategy in Yemen? And I'll just, to show my own cards, I, I read the article, and I understand these strategic issues in this kind of, I don't know, smorgasbordy sort of mm -hmm. way, like, yeah. well, we're concerned about counterterrorism in Yemen, so we obviously have an interest there. Uh, we don't like instability in Yemen. We like stability, so we want that to happen. Uh, we've added some sort of logistical help to the Saudis in maintaining their own security imperatives there, but not too much because we sort of said, well, kind of going overboard, so security, yes, but not too much, so just back off a little bit. So they said they would, but then they didn't. In fact, they kept going, 
but they said, with just a little less vigor than before. Uh, in the meantime, there are these fellows on the ground who are beating back their government. They're the Houthis. They're backed by Iran. And we're concerned about that, too, because we're, as, you know, newsflash, there's this deal with Iran involving nukes. I don't know if you guys have heard about I've that. Heard about that. We'll get to it. <laughs> uh, but anyway, uh, it, the only way I could understand it in strategic, and I say this layman strategic term, was as this sort of, it's a big soup and a terrible mess. And so I didn't really know what the strategy was. So I was hoping you guys did. Well, that was wow. your first mistake. Yeah. <laughs> You're a journalist. Haven't you investigated this question? I'm, I'm still I'm struck by the image of American interests in, in Yemen as a smorgasbord. I think that's a wonderful image. Yeah. I actually think that it's, it's a good descriptor for American interests in the Middle East, the yeah. smorgasbord. In fact, maybe we should do a smorgasbord edition. Of a smorgasbord podcast. edition? I feel yeah. like every week can be like a smorgasbord. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Maybe our podcast is right. a smorgasbord. Sc- Scandinavia comes to the Middle East or yeah, something I like, like that. that. Yeah. But back to the substance. <laughs> no, I, I mean, I, I think the challenge is precisely that the United States has a number of interests it's been pursuing in a long-term way in Yemen and in the region more broadly. And at the moment, it's very, very difficult to um, keep them from conflicting. So pursuing this nuclear deal with Iran, the United States has been somewhat reticent um, to challenge Iran in other domains around the region. American partners in the region, especially the Sunni Arab states led by Saudi Arabia, are incredibly nervous about Iran. Um, And all of this came together in the Yemeni case where you had a U.S.-friendly, Gulf-Arab-friendly government that was actually established in a negotiation after the Arab Spring. It was helping with counterterrorism. It was, you know, friendly to the Saudis. And it fell in the face of uh, an insurgent movement supported by Iran. And so, you know, right here in this one spot, The U.S. is trying to show its support for the Saudis against Iran while it negotiates the deal, but it's also worried about what this is going to do to its relationship with the Iranians. And so, as you said, it's sort of half pregnant on this Yemen operation, Mm -hmm. half in, half out. Um, And the Saudis are not necessarily acceding to American preferences about how to proceed. I I was curious to get both of your reactions to something. Uh, My... uh, 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 close friend of mine works at the State Department, and he, in characterizing the Iran deal, he sort of passed on uh, a characterization the White House had used in sort of managing all these different pieces. He, he was speaking mostly of the, the non-proliferation aspect of it, but I was curious as to whether he thought it might apply to Yemen as well, which was that, well, we've always sort of walked and chewed gum at the same time, right? Like, we've never... We were always negotiating with the Soviet Union for some sort of production in nukes over there, or we were always doing something with a particular entity who was our adversary for one purpose, but our, I don't want to say ally, but our... Partner. Partner. Do you have any experience in diplomacy? <laughs> <laughs> what, well, yeah, fine, you tell me. What is your reaction to that? Maybe, I don't know, that, that was the, cl- the strategy maybe. It's not a strategy, it's just this sort of... Life is messy and we're always negotiating? Right. Yeah, so rule of thumb in talking to people at the State Department, whom I love and of which I was one, when they say walk and chew gum at the same time, what they mean is, don't ask us to choose. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, yes, of course we walk and chew gum at the same time with, we did it with the Soviet Union, we do it today with China, we're doing it with Iran. 
And that's the way the world works. You know, it's there are very, very few countries that are always in agreement with us on everything or always in disagreement with us on everything. So, sure. On the other hand, it's uh, it's difficult to see Iran as anything but a strategic adversary for American interests in the region and the world. We're negotiating with them on this nuclear deal not because they have the potential to be great cooperative partners with us, but because they're a tremendous threat, and we're trying to constrain <laughs> it. And uh, and I think, you know, to the extent that, that our partners in the region are frustrated with us, it's that we don't seem to acknowledge that enough. It seems to me to you like that sort of in the statement when your friend says that, I think to myself, okay, yeah, we were always doing one thing with the Soviets here, and we're doing something over here, but we had an overarching strategy in the Cold War, which was the end of the Soviet Union. That's right. right. And there's an overarching sort of principle. And, you know, I know that Obama talks about, you know, decimation of al-Qaeda and, and, and was it defeat and degrade or def- defeat and destroy ISIS, etc. But it seems to me there's no overarching, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong here, but like what, there's no sort of meta-policy of the Middle East for us, right? I mean, right. Or even counterterrorism. So um, can can I introduce my uh, my text as well, my wordplay? Yeah, and I And maybe we can add this to the discussion. So... I brought with me today um, an op-ed that kind of looks at the same set of issues, the, the U.S. and the Arab states and the Yemen operation, from the Arab point of view. It's an op-ed by Joyce Karam, who's a wonderful uh, Arab journalist, the D.C. correspondent for Al-Hayat. And she has a column, this is actually, I think, in uh, Al-Arabiya today, headlined, Obama's nightmares are converging in Yemen. And she makes the point uh, that the the reasons that he cited Yemen as a model when he announced uh, the anti-ISIS campaign last August have all collapsed in the face of what's happened in the months since. And I think it's sort of a a broader um, realization that the, the policy that the United States reportedly has in the Middle East now is, I would argue, the fourth kind of strategic framework for American for an American approach to the Middle East in this administration. So Obama came in office in 2009. He went to Cairo. He gave this big speech about, you know, we support democracy. We want to solve the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, and we're not just going to work government to government. We're going to work people to people. That was his new beginning with the U.S. and the Middle East. So that was approach number one. Then the Arab Spring happened, and in May 2011, he gave another speech saying it's uh, in America's strategic interests, it's going to be a primary interest of the United States to support democratic change across the region. That lasted until the Arab Spring um, turned violent in a few places, particularly Libya and Syria. And then September 2013, he went to the UN General Assembly with a very different approach. And he said, okay, we have some narrow core interests in the Middle East that we're going to pursue, and the rest of the stuff is not our not our issue. Counterterrorism, free flow of energy to global markets, protecting our key partners, um, Israel and, and Saudi Arabia and so on. So in September 2013, we had, you know, this sort of narrow conception of American interests and American restraint, but that only lasted about a year until ISIS took over Mosul. And then Obama came out and gave another speech and said, okay, we're going to get back engaged militarily in the region in order to degrade, defeat, and ultimately destroy ISIS. Um, and he cited Yemen as an example. When he did that, that was only about six months ago, and here we are today. So I think 
we should probably get ready for another presidential speech that lays out a fifth strategic approach to the Middle East. Wells and and then we can see how long that one lasts. Excellent. Do we have, by the way, is there a possible, can you just think of a fifth off the top of your head? <laughs> Where else do we have left that we might actually pull from? I, I don't even know. I, I don't know. It'll be a smorgasbord. <clears throat> Maybe Libya. I mean, we haven't like, done anything with Libya yet, right? We haven't done anything well, with Libya. In a while. Lately. Lately. Yeah. <laughs> and stuff. Yeah. War, war powers resolution. Sort of Benghazi, no-fly zone. Uh, yeah. Uh, There's a couple I, of them. We recognize one. We like one. Yeah, I'm not sure if I were the Obama administration, I would think I about think Libya so. as, the, as the battleground I want to stand on. I don't think so. There's very few fit options left. I know. The Middle East peace process. Oh, yes. right. Can we, can we call somebody and get that back up again? It's like, listen, I know it didn't go so well. <laughs> Brookings Institution people got a lock on those gigs. <laughs> it's true. It's true. All right. So we're going to move on to switch gears a little bit, go on to uh, my wordplay now. Um, my wordplay is actually a speech that Homeland Security Secretary Jay Johnson gave in San Francisco this week. Why I was out there, it wasn't all fun. It was partly work, too. But I left my job. It's fine. <laughs> Your work is fun. My work is fun. It's a fun job. Uh, he was there for the big RSA conference. It's a big big annual cybersecurity conference, which, by the way, if you needed a reminder that cybersecurity, computer security has become a mammoth business, go to this conference. It was 28,000 people. Oh, my God. It takes over three pavilions in the Moscone Center in San Francisco, which is already a very, very large facility. I mean, it's, it's mammoth. It's absolutely huge. And it's a combination of just trade shows, keynote speeches, you know, sideline me. All I did was back-to-back meetings with people. It's like going to, like, I don't know what people tell me, like, Davos is like, where you don't go for the panel. The you Davos go for the of Cyber. It's the Davos of Cyber. That's so geeky. It's totally, it's so <laughs> incredibly geeky. Were there any women there? No. And this is another thing, too. Actually, this is a very good point. Because it's like there were so few women. And this is a constant source of, you know, uh, uh, frustration for a lot of people and, and debate, frankly. In the computer security world, and we talked about like you know girls coding initiatives and all these things that are aimed at getting more women involved in computer security. It is such a boys' club; it's just wild. In fact, I was meeting one person, and she said, "You'll be able to spot me. I'm one of the very few women standing wow. by where I'll meet oh, you." That's really something. Yeah, it was crazy. It was crazy. Um, so, but anyway, but it is a great conference, and so Johnson gave this speech, and what he announced was that Homeland Security is going to be opening what he called a satellite office in Silicon Valley. And we just found out this week also DOD is going to do the same thing. And it was just, it was a really interesting idea. So, I mean, obviously the past two years have been strained between Silicon Valley and Washington on cybersecurity in the wake of the Snowden revelations. There's a lot of lost trust. There's a lot of bad feelings. A year or so before the first Snowden leak, Keith Alexander, who was then the NSA director, had actually gone out to one of the big hacker conferences and sort of said, we need you and come with us. And Join up with the team. And it was kind of met with a little bit of derision. Like, he took off his army uniform and put on, like, a black T-shirt and black jeans to look like a hacker. But the idea was sort of like you could sort of feel both of these sides trying to come together. The Snowden revelations blow all that away. What's interesting about the RSA conference is it's the companies. It's big tech companies. It's software makers. It's, you know, it's the, the, uh, the sort of the Internet economy. It's not The hackers are there, too, but it's much more the corporate side. And I found it very interesting that Johnson was taking this moment to sort of say, to these companies, 
we're opening this office. We want to, you know, have good relations with you because we there's... We want to give you contracts. We want to give you contracts. We want you to give us your data. Uh, at a time when Congress is debating cybersecurity yeah, An auspicious day to have, have House having passed the cyber bill. Yes, indeed, indeed. Indeed. So you can certainly... It was also notable to me that it was the Homeland Security Secretary and not an intelligence official mm -hmm. going out and making this speech. Um, DHS statutorily has the lead on cybersecurity information sharing with the private sector. It's never really been a robust actor, as they might say in that regard. Um, but you kind of see, but Jay Johnson, you know, as you lawfare audience knows Jay Johnson well, former general counsel of the Pentagon, been getting very high marks as Homeland Security Secretary, I think. Uh, it, you see them asserting this role much more now. Um, now, the idea of a Silicon Valley satellite office, as one person said to me, he said, oh, you mean other than the one they have where they've already just implanted their bugs in our networks? It was kind of, it was a little bit of like that kind of burn. Job. Yeah, it's like, hmm, satellite office, yeah. But you see the beginnings of this repair, I think, from the Snowden leaks happening. And um, yeah, and now the Pentagon announcing that they want one out there too might be a little much. Can I, can I be cynical about this? You know, there are a lot of um, technological innovations that have generated growth in the American economy and new sectors of American industry that were driven by government spending, mm -hmm. that were driven, in fact, by defense spending. Mm -hmm. And what's interesting about the IT sector is that that hasn't been as much the case, at least in the last 10 years or so. It's been driven basically by the private sector. Right. So is some of this kind of the government coming out and saying, we want to help you grow, <laughs> you know, and a co-optation strategy. I mean, yes, there are obviously good reasons that the government wants to work more closely with industry, but it's so, as you were saying, so deeply in the culture of this industry to be suspicious of yeah. government. There is, there, it, it, it's like you said, only a little in reverse. So there is a budding kind of we need to work together and we need to grow together, but it's not so much the government, in this case, saying to Silicon Valley, we want to help you grow. It's the government saying to Silicon Valley, save us. Actually, one of the things that he was, that Johnson was saying in his pitch was that I hope that many of you will consider taking time to do a tour of duty in public service. And basically pitching these tech guys, you know, we need you really badly. We need your help. We need your innovation. We also need your data. We need your cooperation. But he was kind of, it wasn't exactly coming to them with hat in hand. Um, because it is still the federal government and it's a position of authority, but really imploring them to basically send us your bright, smart people to work with us on the mission of securing the nation. Now, how that actually plays out in practice could be any number of different ways, but he was really coming to them saying almost like, you are the experts, right? This is, I mean, you are the Internet, not us. Well, did you feel, just being there, did you feel like he had a receptive ear in the audience? Yeah, I mean, these are libertarian guys. Yeah, it's, it was, I think it was a very skeptical reception. Yeah, I mean, there are companies for sure out there, like the suits in the room, I think probably, you know, have a, a fairly sophisticated nuance of understanding this. They know they have to play ball, et cetera. But just from people like, you know, anecdotally talking to folks who I think are much more, you'd say, like in the trenches kind of operational cybersecurity guys, Deep, deep skepticism. And, you know, and Homeland Security is not an agency that has been in the news as much as the NSA has. Yeah. <laughs> and it doesn't sort of represent the sort of boogeyman factor, I think, for maybe some people. Um, but it's, it's, a, it's a huge department. It does have a very central role, although it hasn't been a very robust one in cybersecurity. And any time somebody like that comes and says, I'm from Washington, I'm here to help, I think there's a very reflexive reaction against that. And the, and the big tech companies have become more and more hostile towards government. So I think Johnson 
knows that he has a tough audience and that he's got a lot of credibility uh, problems. Frankly, the federal government does, even though he may himself have a strong reputation. This is um, this is this is still recent history. The uh, the bad blood over this. Right. Well, yeah, indeed, indeed. Uh, so let's move on to our object lesson segment. Um, Wells, you have you have yeah, quite I, a give me one second. I, yeah, I do have a really fun object lesson, and I want to make sure I get the page citation correctly. My object lesson comes uh, from a book. Uh, it's by a woman. It is a book. It's called specifically uh, the text beginning on page forty-four of that book, and I refer to. The Possessed, Adventures with Russian Books and the People Who Read Them by a woman named Elif Batuman. I like the title. Uh, I, I, came, I came to own this book. It was a gift to be by my dad who is, this is sort of a family object lesson for me because today happens to be my mom's birthday. Oh, happy, happy birthday, birthday, mom. Well, yeah, man. I just sent my mom an email. Uh, um, and also my dad is a sort of, you know, big sort of family guy and raconteur, so he likes to talk about all the sort of different people we're related to, and he also likes to give fun gifts. So, I'm a uh, I'm a Yale dropout. I think oh. the only thing Dick Cheney and I have in common is that neither of us completed our Yale degree. <laughs> um, uh, we know what your future is then. That's right, the dark side. <laughs> <laughs> Darth that's right. Uh, but uh, I went there for to Yale for a year for Russian affairs because I had had a major in Russian in college and I read some Russian literature. And, you know, Try and you know slug through all the great Russian classics and oh, stuff. Yeah, you and, a girl. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so my dad decided to make a little fun of me by giving me this book, being like, "Hey, you used to get a kick out of that stuff too. You got to check this out." <laughs> you know. So I was flipping through the books, and I was thinking, my dad, because not only did he want to have a little fun with me, dad, my dad also likes to talk about my great uncle Marion, who is uh, Marion Cooper. Uh, my middle name is Cooper, actually. It's pronounced Cooper, but it's two O's. The so sort of southern Cooper. fried mispronunciation of, of a true word. Uh, and so I'm reading this book uh, by Elif Batuman, and she's reading up on a story about Isaac Babel, uh, one of the you know, big dog authors of, of that opera. And uh, he wrote this, uh, these, this thing called The Red Cavalry about, about the turn of the century Russia. And in that book, which we had read when I was actually in college, yeah. Uh, Babel speaks to this uh, American pilot who'd been helping the Russians, excuse me, helping the Poles beat back the Russians in the Polish-Russian War of the 1920 to 21, I want to say. Uh, and I, you know, I'd, I'd read this. I thought it was cool. Uh, in the book, there, I can't remember what this fellow's name was. I, I couldn't at the time. But so fast forward to the present day. I'm a grad school dropout. My dad thought it was funny. Uh, my dad loves to talk about Uncle Marion. Here I am on page, what is it, 44, uh, where... Um, I discover that Babel uh, did not, in fact, speak to the, 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 this swashbuckling pilot Babel had spoken to. He said was named Frank Mosher, but it turns out Frank Mosher is not Frank Mosher. The captured pilot was, in fact, an alias of mm -hmm. one Captain Marion Caldwell Cooper, future, future creator and producer of the motion picture King Kong. What? You straight uncle did that? Straight up. And he was a swashbuckling pilot. It gets so much. So I will tie all this in. So here we are today. We're talking rational security. You know, sort of international security cooperation and facing Russian aggression is an issue. <laughs> yeah, it's it, an indeed issue. it is. Military tribunals for wartime, de wartime detainees is an issue. Okay, so Uncle Marion is, in fact, Frank Mosher. So Frank Mosher in the story was held by the Russians, and that's, in fact, true. He came to be named Frank Mosher, as I, or the alias was Frank Mosher, as I learned from Ms. Batuman's book, because my great-uncle 
had gotten the wrong guy's underwear in the laundry, and it has his name in it, so he took Frank's wow. name, so they never learned his real name. Wow. Family lore, I did not read this in the book, but family lore is that uh, Uncle Marion then posed as a deaf guy to help, he, he sprung himself from their capture, from their captivity, posed as a deaf guy, and walked his way west until he was, found his way back into Allied hands. Along the way, also, apparently, he sort of had this kind of thing on the side with his wife. There was some sort of either a Pole or Ukrainian woman, and I have distant cousins there. That's also family lore. <laughs> uh, but he gets he back. He had a busy war. It's incredible. It gets so much better. Cooper's it war. Gets, it gets so much, I mean, so much more interesting, I should say. So he comes back, uh, and then he goes into, uh, he does several things. One is he becomes general counsel of Pan Am, which the whole idea of, like, really pushing air travel in the United States is, a thing among entrepreneurs, and he's on the ground in this, so he makes tons of money. He also then goes back into the war and volunteers for service and, and fights in World War II again, and he's like this decorated war hero, where he has a small role in something called the Doolittle Raids. Do you guys know what that is? Uh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, I didn't know this until basically I was, I was, uh, yeah. The until surviving ver- pilots just gave a, uh, a mem- mem- uh, medal to right. uh, the Air Force Museum. Right. Uh, and so he had a, a role in that. And just sort of, it's a way he keeps his mitts in all this stuff in American history. Basically, I think he had some intelligence or logistical role. He didn't, obviously didn't fly and he was never captured. But the fate of the people who did not actually escape, who went down, uh, you know, is a huge deal. You know, we tried some Japanese people for their treatment of those people, including right. some waterboarding done by right. those people. Right. Also, there was this big question of how they would handle it in military tribunals and in the, in the Japanese government about the proper way to deal with their wartime detainees. So in this weird way... My great uncle touches, you know, dealing with Russian security, wartime, and so and so. Then he comes back, and he's got his riches, and he's a swashbuckling war vet guy who has all these famous friends. So what's he do? He goes straight into Hollywood. And makes King Kong. He made King Kong. He, he, the, first, it was this movie, the first thing was this movie called Grass, which is about the steppe, and it was apparently pretty well received, I guess. But then he takes the money from that and his connections from the corporate world to do King Kong. He also befriended John Wayne and was the executive producer of The Searchers with John Wayne. What? I just have one question about this. Lay it on me. Where is your great uncle, and can we send him to Ukraine? Unfortunately, no. He he <laughs> passed away shortly before I was born uh, in wow. San Diego, of all places. I'm not sure why that is. But my dad always loved to basically, you know, my dad has a book about him. This guy wrote, he, he was a volunteer for something called the Kosciuszko Squadron, which helped out the Poles. And so this guy wrote a book about it, and he would always call my dad. And my dad loved to tell these stories, and he's told the same stories to us every time. I mean, they're never different, even in a detail. And, like, he thinks he's never told wow. you. But he always talks about our grand Marin. And so my dad taunts me, or not a taunt, but just sort of a little joke about, hey, you remember dropping out of grad school? Check out this book. And I get to basically, the ghost of Uncle Marion, rational security. That I is my object lesson. there needs lesson. to be a... a, a movie, I think, about your uncle. Definitely. He gets After a, you write the book about your grandfather, Shane, yeah. you write a screenplay. About, he, gets a one, he gets a one-sentence mention in the remake of King Kong. Jack Black, um, in the very beginning of the movie, goes like, aren't you in some movie with, I think he says Cooper, which is a total offense to the family. You know, like, <laughs> you know, my grandmother would be like, honey, it's Cooper. You Jack know. Black, if you're listening, we, 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 we you need anyway, to help us on the, my know, object on the biopic le- of Mr. Cooper. Such is my object lesson that from pages 44 through 47. Jeez, that, that's one of the most epic ones. That may be the most epic object that lesson we've ever had. Thanks, Wells. You're welcome. Um, <clears throat> uh, Tamara, why don't you share your object lesson with us? Okay, well, um, last week we talked about how spring has sprung in Washington and uh, every year when spring comes around, I have grand aspirations for my garden. After trying a number of years to overseed my lawn and fertilize my lawn and make it green and lush like all Washington lawns should be, I've given up. 
and uh, we're going to rip out all the grass and turn it into a garden. Planting. Woo, right? So this is exciting. This is, however, also an amazing opportunity for you rational security listeners because as I was investigating what plants to plant in the garden, I have this beautiful book of garden designs here, the big book of garden designs. Um, there's one native plant here in D.C. that I really love, mountain laurel. Mm-hmm. It's, a, it's a shrub. It has these beautiful little white and pink flowers. And I found out it's incredibly poisonous. Really? And people don't plant it in their gardens because dogs or cats <gasps> eat it. It's poisonous. So, which bummed me out because I wanted to plant it, but it led to an idea. The idea is this, um, that as I, uh, I'm really bad at making decisions, as I try to choose plants for this garden, I thought I would solicit the help of Rational Security listeners to help me plant a security-themed garden. I'm looking for your poisonous plants. I'm looking for your plants with spy applications. <laughs> Long thorns. Long thorns. They could be good screening, good cover. You tell me, tweet your ideas to me at TC Wittis, and uh, and we will have the Rational Security Garden by the end of the summer. I love that. Hell or high water. <clears throat> this reminds me of um, uh, uh, Alice Roosevelt Longworth, who had a house not far from here, uh, just off DuPont Circle, where there's a bus stand right in front of it, who grew poison ivy all along her front garden to keep people from leaning on the fence. <laughs> Yeah, great. I won't do that. You're gonna oh, quite that unwelcoming. But he has you're following me in a long tradition of this. I'm wondering if we should, I'm wondering if Ben Ben is tweeted in right now with the sort of like tell them about the you know, the sort of small leaf or whatever that has a camera in it that can do bulk surveillance and that'll be efficiently distributed to non state actors in a matter that. of years. Up, oh, not yet. But. So my object lesson, uh, I've been doing a lot of OSS themed stuff lately, and I just thought I'd do another one. It's actually a painting. It's not a great picture of a painting here, but it's rather abstract. This is a painting called Rose. This is hanging in my house by a woman named Frances Cornbluth. Um, Frances recently died about a, about a year or so ago at the age of, I think, 93. Anyway, I met her because she uh, is an artist, a painter, obviously, who spent summers on this island where my family and I go called Monhegan, Maine. Uh, and we got to know her over the years in her studio. And it turned out she worked for the OSS. She was one of like so, sort of like in the same era as wow. Julia Child and all these other people. Um, she, yeah, she was a, a young uh, woman living in Washington. I believe she told me because her husband was stationed here, uh, and she, you know, wanted to serve, wanted to do something. So she joined up with this thing, then called the OSS. And the, the, my two favorite sort of stories about this are one. Uh, she did not speak, I think it was either French or German, one or the other. She did not speak it, but they put her in charge of reading documents that were in, I think it was German, and deciding which section they should go to Whoa. to be analyzed. So she's down here like working in one of these huts probably on the mall for all I know during the war. And she just had a dictionary with her and her job was to try and find words that were keywords that would tell her where to route them. Right. right. <laughs> and send her on to the right people. <laughs> Um, and the, funny, the other thing says Wolf Slayer. He's like, I, I don't know where it goes over here to this <laughs> section. I don't know. It's a lot. It's a lot of words. Um, she talked like that too. She was wonderful. Uh, and uh, the other thing I loved was that whenever I would try to get her to tell me stories more than the few she would tell, she would never do it because she said that she had signed like a secrecy oath and she wasn't awesome. sure whether she'd get in trouble if she told me. And I was telling her like, I'm like Francis. I think it's long since passed. 
your obligations. I think they're not going to they're not going to take it out on you. Oh, that's just the journal. Let's hear it. Let's hear it for the NDA. I really, no, I really tried to get her. I mean, it took her a year to agree to like do an interview with me, and then sadly she died before we could do it. Um, but uh, yeah, she was quite a lady, and uh, and a really great and important abstract painter, uh, actually as well. So she was my little. Uh, Linked to the women of the OSS, which was super cool. That's totally That's cool. Francis. Yeah, and thank you for thank you for your service, Francis. That brings us to the end of the show. Rational Security is a production of Spaghetti on the Wall Productions. You can find links to all of our other great podcasts at SpaghettiOnTheWallProductions.com. You can follow us at RATL Security on Twitter. Uh, and make sure to leave us a review wherever you download the podcast. It's the best way to help people find the show who haven't heard about it yet. And we love hearing your feedback. Thanks very much for that. Um, our show, as always, is edited by Jen Howell. Our music is this week performed by Cooper's King Kong Trio. As if. <laughs> uh, no, no. Our music, as always, is performed by the inimitable Sophia Yan, coming to you every week from Hong Kong. I'm Shane Harris on behalf of my friends Tamara Kaufman with us and our special guest, Woo-hoo. Wells Bennett. It was so good to have you um, here. Thanks for having me. I thanks hope you'll come back again. I can't wait. Let's do it. Ben is out Let's of town. do it. Uh, thank you very much, guys, and we'll talk to you all next week. Thanks for listening. 